the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we reflect and honor those who were killed in Afghanistan. And then we're joined by Dr. Liz Rios, founder and president of Passion to Plant. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a Monday afternoon. Hope that you're having a great day, Aubrey. How are you today? I am doing awesome. How about you, Brian? It's good. It's some fall weather finally coming our way. It was a good weekend, and here's the new week ahead of us. That's it's like right. a blank slate, and we're glad to have you joining us today. On the common good, we're excited to be joined later on by Reverend Dr. Liz Rio. She's the founder and president of an organization called Passion to Plant. I don't know, Reverend Doctor. That's that's I an impressive it. move. I want to be impressive. a Reverend Doctor. <laughs> I want to be love a Reverend it. or Doctor. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then later on, good friend of the show, David French, is going to join us mm-hmm. as we talk about. Uh, he wrote a blog post about evangelicalism and the vaccine, which I'm, as I, as I told him the other day, I said, uh, at least you don't do things, you know, at least you're willing to dive into things. And so uh, another thing that David French has written a lot about is Afghanistan. And Aubrey, that's where I want to start mm-hmm. as today. Uh, CENTCOM Commander General McKenzie said there's a lot of heartbreak associated with this departure as today they said we're done. Everybody's wow, out. Brian, All the wow. servicemen are out, servicemen wow. and servicewomen. <clears throat> and he said there's a lot of heartbreak associated with this departure. Listen to this line. We did not get everybody out that we wanted to get out. Mm. He adds that if they'd stayed 10 days more, they still would not have been able to do it. Wow. The point is made that all American servicemen and women are out, mm-hmm. uh, but they're acknowledging, which I, I don't know, on some level, you got to at least respect that they're just honestly acknowledging we can get everybody we out that we planned out, on, but, we're done now. but mm-hmm. we are done. I don't know that that closure Ooh. to read that, Aubrey, that closure, I, that hit heavy to me yeah, it's heavy. as you've been reading all this stuff, all these stories about people trying to get out. Uh, and, and the people were trying to get out just to say, we didn't get out everybody we yeah. wanted to get out. And, and par- you know, kind of the result of that is in, it probably won't go well for those that we were not able to get out. I don't know. What do you think? I find that really heavy. Oh, my heart is so heavy for the people who are remaining. And I'm sure they'll people will try to flee to different countries. But at the end of the day, we know that things look very, very serious, very heartbreaking in Afghanistan right now. And. I don't know. It's a sobering moment for us as a country. Definitely. We say this every week right now, but it is time for us to be praying and do whatever we can to send aid, to send help to those in Afghanistan and to not forget what's happening. I think the other thing that we don't want to forget is the U.S. service members that were killed in the Kabul attack last week. Looking at some of the pictures of these young men, Brian. And women. And women. Thank you. And women. Uh, Devastating in their 20s. I mean, I'm looking at the list. I see age 22, mm. age 20, yeah. age 20, yeah. age 20. And you just keep going on the list. They're all 20, 21, 22. Uh, it's, Aubrey, you and I talked the other day uh, when this attack happened at the gates there at the airport. Uh, and, and we talked about the tragic nature of it. But 
again to see the faces and pictures and names and mm. ages of these kids. Like you and I, I don't we're allowed to share your age. I'm 44. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> to, to think about that and now go, gosh, at the age of 22, yeah. at the age of 20, yeah, I, I do think you and I felt the, the um, desire and need to begin today's show honoring them as Absolutely. their bodies were returned to the U.S. yesterday, I believe it was, and as their names and stories. Like, Aubrey, I don't know if you saw the story of the – um, of the Marine, the woman who like had posted less than a day before holding a baby. I did see this Marine Sergeant Nicole. I don't know if it's Guy or G, but yeah. she posted about how much she loves her job and is holding the young Afghan infant in her arms. Devastating. She was, I think, 23 years old. Yeah. And then you read stories. They all have families at home. Mm-hmm. And right. There was a, uh, a serviceman who was killed, who, um, uh, whose wife is pregnant and due in a couple uh. of weeks. And you just start to read these stories, Aubrey. And for me, it it takes the uh, the tragic nature of the news and makes it very personal, Absolutely. very day-to-day. Because you do, you kind of go, man, it stinks. Uh, more than stinks. It's tragic that, that this happened and that people were killed. But then you start reading their stories and you, you feel this kind of visceral desire mm-hmm. to honor them. Yeah. Like, so that they're... they're um, uh, their sacrifice is not forgotten. That's and so right. I guess that's where I want to turn this. How do we honor? How do we uh, go about remembering and not just turning this into some partisan debate mm-hmm. about, oh, this was Trump's fault with that deal. And this mm-hmm. is Biden. Biden really botched this and this and that. We got to get out. But how do we remember those uh, Americans and Afghanis who who were killed here? Yeah, I think part of the way we remember is what you just said, Brian. Let's not jump online to get on these like political debates. Let's stop and honor families. Let's say the names of those who have been lost. Go mm. on New York Post. Go on New York Times. Go on whatever news source you use and look up soldiers that were killed. Look up the names of Afghanis that have been killed that have been published and say their names before the Lord. Lift their families mm. before the Lord. And um, let's I I think you're so right. This is a moment where we need to remember that there is flesh and blood, human beings, lives being lost. Mm -hmm. And we can't dehumanize the loss, even though it feels distant from us. And especially the soldiers, the military who have given so much of themselves. We definitely want to honor our service members and their sacrifice. Yeah, and we certainly don't want to also now go, well, the U.S. is out, so we don't have to pray anymore. Yeah, We don't have any. uh, You know, I do think, as you and I have been saying for the last week or two, there is a burden upon the American church right now to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. who are still there. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are... Um, you know, mission organizations, there are underground church. And I don't know the stories we read a few weeks ago. It was saying that uh, the Taliban has made it very clear that they are coming for the underground church when America leaves, Mm -hmm. uh, when the, when the U S leaves. And now that that has happened, uh, I don't think we can go, well, our country's gone, so we don't have to pray for them anymore. No, I think the church, uh, those are our brothers and sisters. And that's why we try to talk about worldwide stories. Like they're not, uh, they're not Afghan Christians. They're Christians mm-hmm. uh, who we will spend eternity with. Right? right. The book of Revelation says we will be before the throne of God with every tribe, tongue and nation. That's right. So we very well will be worshiping with those who are in life and death peril right now. And I think 
if you think about what would you do if you had a family member over there, you would be praying day and night. Oh, you would I would this. not stop praying. I mean, I just and I would be writing my political figure yes. leaders like I would not stop fighting. I think that's a good word for all of us. Because praying. I would say biblically, you do have family members over there. That's right. You do have family members in harm's way. I read a story about. You know, Nigeria again, where what some stuff happening to the church over there. We've got brothers and sisters mm. in Christ over there that that's not just a theoretical description. That's a biblical description. And so, Aubrey, I would say there is there is a maybe even a greater call now to be praying for the persecuted church and praying for the Afghan church as they now really are facing life and death scenarios. Absolutely. This is a moment. And I mean, you know, I know sometimes I can say this too often, but this is a moment now more than ever that we are called to lament. Mm. That means get on your knees and cry out like the lamenters of the past have done. How long, oh Lord, like how long will you allow this destruction to go on? God, please be who you are and please do something new in Afghanistan in Nigeria, mm-hmm. in Haiti, that's right. in the South where Hurricane Ida is coming, like, Lord Jesus, have mercy. I think that's simple prayer. Lord Jesus, how long? Lord Jesus, have mercy. God will hear our prayers. That's right. That's right. So we wanted to start there because it's heavy. Yeah. It's heavy to read the names of those soldiers. But I'd encourage you, as Aubrey said, if you haven't, go do it. That's an honoring of mm-hmm. them. Go read their stories, read and pray for their families. Mm -hmm. And as we are kind of closing the door as a nation of being over there, let's continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and that God would do a miracle and that the gospel would spread uh, in Afghanistan. Well, we're glad to be with you today. Coming up next, Reverend Dr. Liz Rios. She's the founder and president of Passion to Plant. Liz is going to join us next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon, a beautiful sunny day out there in the Chicagoland area, and we are excited to be with you. And Aubrey Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined on the phone by Reverend Dr. Liz Rios. Liz, how are you doing today? Hey, how are you up in Chicago? We're great. We love that you're here with us, Liz. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Hey, Liz, we want to talk about all things, uh, a lot of things with you, including passion to plant uh, and this article we just recently read. But before we do that, here's what I want to have you do. Could you introduce yourself to our audience in any way you'd like so they can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. Well, I'm a native New Yorker, and I am a transplant here in South Florida. I'm near Miami in Miramar. I am uh, the mother of two children. One is a special needs child. I've been married for 32 years to um, my wonderful uh, supportive husband who's also uh, been a church planter and pastor. And um, I've had various different careers in my lifespan. I've been in higher education and um, in various different roles in the church. Mm. That's great, Liz. We're so thrilled that you're with us today. Brian and I are actually both church planters, so Mm -hmm. it's so fun to be talking church planting with you. Um, (laughs) I understand totally. You you get it. You know what it is. Okay, so Liz, here's what we love. At the beginning of this article that Bob Smetana wrote about you and other female church planters, it says, The Reverend Liz Rios has a simple philosophy of, of ministry. What God wants her to do, she'll do. <laughs> and Brian and I were like, yes, that is it. That's amazing. Can you talk to us about that philosophy? 
Sure. I mean, I think there has to be a point in our lives as believers, as Jesus followers, where we're going to listen to him more than we listen to the voices that are around us. And it's really easy to just fall into that. But I have, you know, I've been around for a quick minute. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll get into my age, but, you know, I've been around. And I just got to this point where I stopped the debating. I don't want to get into a debate with people who don't think that I should be preaching or yeah. planting churches or being a pastor. You know, I, I want to just do the work because that's what God put us on this good earth for, to do the work that's right. and prepare this coming. And, um, yeah, I, I, it's a waste of time to get into the debate. So that's why I said so clearly you're not on Twitter then. <laughs> uh, Liz, let me ask you this. Oh, that's funny. Liz, it says you've had multiple church plants over 30 years of ministry. I would just love to know the stories. How many churches have you helped start? Uh, and what do you? what is it that you love about startup congregations, about starting new churches? Okay, so I, I helped start three, and um, my, my longest term in one was 10 years. Mm. Um, and I served as executive pastor there. And one of the things that, I mean, I have stories for days, <laughs> um, but things that um, I love about starting is, you know, that community that you first start to build and getting to know people's stories. Because I think as a church grows, sometimes the emphasis on listening uh, diminishes and it's, and it's, you know, starting to do the productivity. People start doing things and, and they forget how important community is. And I don't think that it's on purpose all the time, but I do believe that many times, you know, we just don't have that intentionality behind what we started in the beginning. So getting to know people's stories, getting to kind of like, you know, hold hands and do things together mm. is one of the things that I love about startup churches. Mm -hmm. And also the dreaming part. I think, you know, when you're first starting, anything is possible. You're like a little child and you're like, what can this church be? Mm -hmm. As you start going through the different stages of, you know, organizational life, um, then you start to see, you know, what are some of the, the hindrances and obstacles. And sometimes some people stop dreaming. And, yeah. um, and you know, that's the part that, you know, as a planter, we have to continuously remind people of what we saw in the beginning. That's so true. Mm, Liz, um, one of the things that I appreciate about you is this organization that you started, Passion to Plant, as another like another female with you in church planting. Most of the training or programs that I've been a part of have been largely led by men and white men at that. And Passion to Plant is doing something different. So can you talk to us about that? Sure. Um, yeah. The reason why I started this, and I, did this, I started this in the middle of the pandemic in April of 2020, um, was because I went through various different uh, networks to get trained, and while I didn't, I don't, I don't, I didn't start this as a corrective for all the things that they were doing wrong. I started it because I thought that there was just some things missing, especially for people of color interested in planting mm -hmm. in communities of color. Mm -hmm. um, and I started to, you know, just feel that there was a need for discussion on privilege and power. On, on how justice is actually biblical justice and right. not a politics platform. Yep. Um, and, you know, we just started to just kind of, you know, dream up this, this whole network. And the next thing you know, I was doing a, a doctor of ministry, and I decided to, um, you know, use that, that um, information to plant uh, passion to plant. And uh, that's how we kind of got started. That's great. Again, passion to plant is passion. And then the number two, plant.com. That's passion to plant. 
com. You can also follow them on Twitter at Passion to Plant. And Liz, uh, as a pastor, uh, we said Aubrey and I are both pastors and coming out of COVID, although I don't know how much we're coming out at the moment, but uh, as we move through this pandemic, there have been things that have been really challenging, but also opportunities. How are you viewing this next season? Are you discouraged and like, oh, this is hard? Or are you seeing some new opportunities that you're excited to jump into? You know, that's a great question. So um, right now, it is hard. You know, we have to be real that it's hard. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's been challenging. It's been a, a, a time of grief, right? Because it's, it's mm-hmm. impacted people in so many different ways and in ways that were expected and in some ways that weren't expected. So so it's been hard in that way because as a, as a pastor, as a minister, uh, the people that are in church leadership with you, you all have to figure out ways to be there for people when you can't even touch them. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That's so mm-hmm. true. So, so it's hard because especially in, in the Latino community, we forget it. We, we're like husbands and kissers. So <laughs> this, this, this has been extremely hard for us, you know. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I do believe that it's also a great opportunity. And that's what crisis means, right? It's yes. also an opportunity. And I believe that it's a time for reimagining the church because even pre-COVID, it, we didn't have a choice about reimagining church. We were mm-hmm. having problems That's already right. before COVID, but COVID just put that in, on, on the limelight. It, it just showcased what was fluff, what was not needed anymore, and what and it took everything down to the to the core of what is it that church is that helps people to become Jesus followers and disciples. Mm. And I think a lot of pastors were able to, you know, say, okay, this is what I'm going to do as we continue to progress, because we, like you said, we are not post-pandemic. I see some people saying post-pandemic yeah. church. I'm like, please slow it down because we're not there yet. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're, we're still in, in, in this in this COVID situation. But I do believe that it's an opportunity for us to really sit down and reimagine ministry because we keep reading, right, that the denominations are, are continuing to decline. And COVID just made it even more mm-hmm. obvious for people that were attending of what they loved and what they didn't love about the church, too. So it wasn't just the pastor that was getting a memo. Also, the people that were in the pews were getting a memo yeah. mm. about what is it that they loved and, and did not love. What can they do without and what can they can they you know be with when it comes to um, uh, church ministry? Which is why so many people are still hesitant. Um, to even go to church sometimes, even with, with a mask, you know, with a, you know, for the churches that are practicing the mask mandate, because they still haven't been convinced that the churches have learned their lesson. Mm. Yeah, again, Dr. Uh, Reverend Dr. Liz Rios is our guest, and she's going to stay with us. Again, Dr. Rios, you can find her work at passion2plant.com. That's passion, the number two, and plant.com. You can also connect with Dr. Rios at elizabethrios.com and follow her on Twitter at Dr. Liz Rios. You really shared passionately and in, in, in some convicting ways about reimagining the church like what does it look like what are some things that we can reimagine and I, and I guess I'd love for you to continue kind of sharing there what are the thing what are some ways you would like to see the church reimagine itself and maybe um, change some of the things they've done in the past yeah that's a great question thanks for asking um, there's so many things that sometimes put the churches in a box um, so just recently and you know whether whether she has fans or not I, I want to point out 
uh, uh, Maria uh, Bold Weber. Mm-hmm. This church, this Lutheran church, just um, uh, uh, ordained her as um, public uh, witness, uh, minister of public witness, you know, for her role in, in um, as a public theologian. And it's never been done before. Wow. And I and I celebrated that because I said, see, this is a church that's reimagining. We never did this before, but they did. They didn't um, use the oh, we can't because. They said, why not? And and because they said, why not? They established a new role for a new era in our time when a lot of the discussion that's happening about religion is actually happening in, in the public um, square yeah. as opposed to the churches, right? Because a lot of the churches are afraid to have these discussions. So that's why more and more people are saying, you know what? We'll talk to the people that are outside of the of the uh, confines of what is traditional church. So I thought that was one thing that was really great to celebrate, whether you know again people have fans or not. But the other thing um, is how to people how do we get people to get together? Because um, we always celebrate the Sunday service, right? That is like the the pinnacle of the church right. that, okay, we have to meet on, on Sundays without that. We're, we're not a church and we have to meet in a building because without a building, we're not a church. And of course, like, as we already discussed, COVID just, you know, flipped the script on that and, and reminded us that we do not, we do not need a building for mm-hmm. us to, to, to be together and to create disciples and, and help them to live this, this difficult life of, yeah. of being a Jesus follower. Right. So I think that that's another way. Um, my good friend, uh, Pastor Jose Humphreys, he wrote a book called What Happens uh, When the Church Shows Up and, stay, and Stays Put. Hmm. And, um, and, he, and that is another thing that churches can do. Like when they walk around, when they're looking at what's going on in their community, what, what is the, oh, the gathering spot already, you know, where people are already gathering, where, where people are already meeting up, you know, more and more people. I live in Florida, so um, right now, you know, Florida don't care about mass mandates or anything. <laughs> so, so they're basically meeting everywhere. Yeah. We have people meeting in various different locations. So, I think people just need to kind of like break the box, but not 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 to say that there aren't some traditional things that need to continue to happen. But I do believe that reimagining means that you um, get to co-create with people instead of two or three or four people sitting together in a room, usually, you know, white males, they can invite people from the community, people that are already part of their, of their church community and say, how can we reimagine this, this faith community yeah, and, and give people a voice? I love that, Liz. Uh, off air, Liz, my husband uh, texted me. Kevin Sampson was in a cohort with you and uh, Dr. Soong Chan Ra. So I love that we have that connection. I didn't know that. <laughs> but I bring that up because I know you have a cohort, church planting cohort, that's running in January, the Justice Oriented Church Planting Cohort. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. Oh, look at that. I love it. It's a small world. Isn't that fun? <laughs> I love it, too. I love it. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yes, I actually took that cohort because I wanted to learn more about, you know, confronting power and privilege and some of the things that we've been, you know, confronted with in this, in this world. Mm -hmm. Um, And my cohort, um, which is the inaugural cohort, we just graduated at 12 um, church planters last Wednesday. Awesome. Yeah, I was so excited about that. And believe it or not, the majority were women. There were seven women in the group. Amazing. Which is unheard of. Um, Usually there's not that many women. Um, And what we talked about, again, were things that I 
that I didn't feel I needed to recreate because the other church networks are doing a great job about it. You know, vision, budgeting, you know, team development, all that stuff. They're doing a great job. There was no need to reinvent the wheel. What I wanted to do is supplement what other church planters get from other networks. And we talked about um, how to be a, a healthy pastor, right? So de- uh, developing yourself, understanding when you're, when you're toxic, basically, and, and what to do when, when you see that that's already rearing its ugly head. Wow. We talked about ethnicity and culture in leadership because most of the time when we come into evangelical spaces, what happens is they tell you to leave your culture at the door because we're all one under the blood. But really, when you come to the Lord, you're supposed to become more of who you are, not mm, less of who you are. That's so good. So, so we talk about that, and we, we talk about how you celebrate that. While you could celebrate everyone, no one is one, one above the other, but all of them are great and awesome, and, we, and those should be celebrated. Um, you know, we talked about a theology of justice, obviously, because, you know, in, in this time that we're living in, there's such a debate now about, you know, justice, and if it's a God thing or if it's a, a party, you know, politics thing. And, of course, you know, we believe that it is biblical, and we talk about that, and we go through the whole canon of Scripture to discuss this theology of justice. And, and the whole purpose of Passion to Plant is to help plant us to start justice-oriented churches right from the start. Because once the ship goes out to sail, it's really hard to, to, to turn it around. Mm. So if we, if we have church planters already thinking about that from the beginning, and, and that's part of their DNA, we believe that there's going to be more healthier churches, more churches that are actually being of more good to their community because mm. they're helping in areas that that community specifically needs. We even talked about um, the role of the black church in civic activism and the role of the brown church in civic activism because we believe that the church does have a role in civic advocacy, and, and it's a different role. Everybody's not going to be doing the same thing, and no, we're not saying that everybody's going to go in, in, uh, to Washington, D.C. and have, you know, um, you know uh, protest various different things, but we do believe that you may need to go to your um, outbudsman in your city. You may need to go to your mayor in your city. You may need to advocate for the people in your church who, whose water has been turned off. You may, you may need to go and, and work with the, the elderly in your community to help them with their social security. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's so many different ways that a lot of pastors don't realize it's actually civic advocacy because you're you're trying to address policies. Now, sometimes they don't go to the root issue. They, they go to what's happening at the moment. But we want to train pastors to, to go back. What What is the root issue and why is this continuously happening in your community? Great. And we talked about a whole bunch of other stuff too, like cross-cultural engagement and worship and, and even... Why women are called. That's right. Amen. Liz, as we kind of close it up here, uh, really grateful for your time. Uh, One of the questions, especially kind of in the pandemic that we like to ask pastors is just this. uh, If you're hopeful for the future of the church, what is it that makes you hopeful? Why are you hopeful for the future of the church? Oh, oh, that's, that's a great question. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think for us as Jesus believers, we are people of hope. So even though we may be uh, downcast, you know, like the Bible says in, in Psalms, right? Why are you downcast on my soul? We are going to have those moments where we're going to be downcast and we're sad and we're lamenting and we're grieving. Yeah. So we are people of hope. If we remember what happened on the cross and the promise of the cross, we know that, yeah, you know what? The Spirit is always at work in the hearts of the people. And while the Spirit is always at work, the mission continues, the mission remains, and we will always have the strength and wherewithal 
to do what God has called us to do. That's a great word. Again, Reverend Dr. Liz Rios is the founder and president of Passion to Plant. You can find out more at passiontoplant.com. That's passion, the number two, and plant.com. You can also connect with Dr. Rios at elizabethrios.com and follow her on Twitter at Dr. Liz Rios. Again, that's at Dr. Liz Rios. Liz, it is so great to meet you. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invitation. God bless you, Chicago. There you go, and you as well. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day. I have a bit of a ridiculous story. We've done some heavy stuff today. We have some heavy. We talked about Afghanistan. We're going to, at the start of next hour, talk about the hurricane in New Orleans uh, and throughout Louisiana. And so I'm going to give you a story from the Chicagoland that I, I need your response to. But before we do that, okay. you got a book coming out in less than, a, oh no, in a, a week and a day? It's a week and a day. I, how was is, look- I want to know how you're feeling no, Brian, right now. I was looking at my calendar and I've been thinking I have two weeks. So, so, oh. Oh, I got two more. I got two more weeks. I have a week. Yeah. Yeah, I'm feeling excited. I can't wait for Known, How Believing Who God Says You Are Changes Everything Launches Into the World. It is available for pre-order now wherever you buy your books. Yes, I'm very excited. You sent to us. I I was part of the people who got one in the mail. The book Early edition, that's right. The book looks great. And uh, we're excited for that. Is this an inappropriate question? When you release a book, when do you see money for the first time? Oh, uh, <laughs> assuming I'll, it sells. I'll just say this. My first book released in 2015, I got my first royalty check for it very recently. <laughs> <laughs> if that tells you anything. <laughs> so it, it's not going to release on Tuesday and you start getting stuff on nope. Wednesday. Nope. Unless but, all of you people buy a copy right now, which well, I know you'll do. I'm glad that you are going to still be here then. So, yes, order the Purpose Driven Known. Now, see if we add that, maybe it'll sell better. You know what I mean? So there we go. <laughs> I like right. it. <clears throat> Here's the story. This is out of the Chicagoland area. Uh, but here, this story kind of went viral a little bit. So these people threw a uh, destination wedding at the Royalton Negril Resort and Spa. Okay. okay. So it's a, it's, a, it's a destination wedding. 109 people were invited and 101 showed up. Okay. Which is pretty unbelievable. So didn't come. After repeated RSVPs. So 109 people RSVP'd that they were coming, but 101 showed. So those eight guests didn't tell uh, Deidre and Doug Simmons that they weren't attending. Okay. So the couple had already paid the resort roughly $120 per person for the unused seats. Okay. So they got back to Chicago and they sent invoices. Unbelievable. To the friends who didn't come. So wow. like you and Kevin, right? You're going to plan to go. You yeah. decide, you know what? We got this with the family. Something came up. Yeah. COVID, kids, whatever yeah. else it might be. Your friend or whoever, however you knew them, would uh-huh. have presented you with a with bill, a bill for two hundred and forty dollars. So on the one hand, oh. the people said they were coming and didn't show. Yeah. On the other hand, you sent your friends a bill for one hundred and twenty. Fair tacky. or foul? Fair oh, or foul? I, you know, I'm going to go foul. I can see the. I can see you wanting to. Like, I would certainly want to, especially a destination situation where you're assuming everyone's coming. You make the payment based on, okay, if you say you're going to be there, we're going to pay for your seat. So you better be there. 
But really, it's tacky. You can't you can't send your friends a bill. Maybe your loved ones wanted the invoice. <clears throat> I I think if I were the person who decided not to come, I would go ahead and offer to pay and probably pay. Like I would not. I I definitely would. <laughs> yeah. But I to uh, invoice your friends. No, 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 no. So they titled the invoice, No Call, No Show Guest. And it explains, because you didn't call or give us proper notice that you wouldn't be in attendance, this amount is what you owe us for paying for your seats in advance. (laughs) They each own small businesses and said they received support from all over the world, but some responses weren't too kind, they said. Uh, Some people said you shouldn't have had a wedding they couldn't afford. Uh, The newlyweds say they ultimately got what they wanted, and the invoice was really just to send a message. Said we would have given them the benefit of the doubt that they reached out to us, but the fact that you didn't reach out, I wanted this to be a teachable moment. Stop it! I would say to my friend, I don't need you to teach me. I don't need you to teach me. I'm a grown woman or a grown man. This is a good way to end a friendship pretty quickly. I think it is. I think it is. Okay, so I think we both... While you understand way at the core of what this mm-hmm, is, I think mm-hmm. we're calling foul on this one. I agree. Okay. Yeah, this was a faux pas big time. All right. I want to close out the hour this way. Uh, I saw this up at Desiring God at DesiringGod.org. Uh, they wrote, this is a big right-hand turn on my part, but they wrote this. You have permission to slow down. Start the day with the voice of God. Let me mm. just start with that title, Aubrey. Why do you even think that they would frame it in that way of giving us permission, that we feel like we need permission to slow down. Why frame it in that way? I'm guessing just because we had some permission to slow down while like we were clinging to our lives in the middle of the <laughs> pandemic. But now life has opened up again and school has started again. And, you know, remote work is going back to the office again and people are going and doing. And I think this is maybe a reminder like, hey, breathe. Mm. Stop. Let's go back to some of those rhythms that we had for a while. Let's remember to be quiet and listen to God. I, this is interesting. I haven't read the article yet, but I have a friend who starts every single morning in silence, literally just listening. God, what do you want to say to me? And she'll mm. spend 30 minutes to an hour literally just listening and has had the most beautiful times with the Lord in the mornings because of that. What is the setup like? Yeah, well, I mean, it's pretty cushy. She goes outside on her beautiful back porch. She's got land in West Virginia. So she (laughs) looks out on her land on her swing, you know, her swing on her porch. But she just she's got her blanket and she's got her coffee and she's like, Lord, I want to hear from you. And Mm. God shows up. It's really cool. That that is impressive. So start the day with the voice of God. So let's go there. Uh, That's really great what your friend does. Mm -hmm. People who don't start their day this way, people who are like, you know what? I get out of the bed and I hit the ground running. Here we go. Here we go. A, what's the importance of starting the day uh, in the word, in prayer, in listening? And then maybe what would be one step for somebody who's never done this? Mm. Oh, such a good question. Okay. I I am not one of those people who thinks it has to be in the morning. Now, Mm -hmm. scripturally, we do see like the psalmist saying, Lord, every morning I wake up and I praise you. I rise and I praise you. You know, I think if you're an afternoon person, be with the Lord at lunch. Like if you're an evening person just before bed, that can be some time of silence. Now, I think as Christians, we should be talking to God throughout our day. Everything we're doing is Mm -hmm, prayer. mm -hmm. Like, But I do think the value of that set aside quiet time where we're just seeking the voice of God, seeking the Holy Spirit. Life is so busy and so full of hustle and so many contrarian voices in our lives to just be silent. I like to do it in the morning because I can. My kids Mm -hmm. are of age where Mm -hmm. I can. Not everyone is in that season. 
Um, because I like to start my day having like a fresh word from God, a fresh vision from God. It feels like a restart. It's a little selfish. I want that time to like have peace when I start my day. Yeah, they ask a hard question What's in this that? article. They say, ask yourself, how hurried are my devotions? So not only do I do, you know, you know, the Christian vernacular there of devotions, yeah. for those of you who may not be familiar, it's kind of reading your Bible, spending time in prayer. Uh, they're basically saying it's not even enough that you're doing it. Like, are you rushing through it like it's homework? Are you just trying to go? He says this might be one of the most countercultural things you can do. Go to bed without a screen. Get up early. Grab a paper Bible. Put your phone aside and let the voice of God in the scriptures fill your mind and heart at his pace. Not the world's. God has given you permission to slow down. Love so it. with the minute we have left, what's a one step people could do? What is one kind of action point? Yeah, I guess get up 10 minutes earlier. Okay. okay? 10. Go easy on yourself. Do not look at that phone. Get a chair, get your Bible, start with Genesis, start with the Psalms, wherever you want to start. Read a little bit, journal a little bit, ask God to show up, and then maybe make it 15 minutes a little bit later Mm. and see if you get to the point where you've got a good, solid, whatever time you want with the Lord. Don't be hard on yourself. Be graceful. God is inviting you near. That's good stuff. We're glad that you're joining us today. My name is Brian Fromm with Aubrey Sampson. You are listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, where is God in the midst of natural disasters? And then we're joined by David French, senior editor at The Dispatch. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Monday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. It's a beautiful day out there, and we're so thrilled that you've joined us again today. There is a lot of heartache in the world mm-hmm. right now, and we know that you are feeling it heavily We wanted to update you on everything we know that's going on um, in New Orleans right now because of Hurricane Ida. And Brian, you just read something that was pretty interesting. Yeah, there was just a tweet. And, you know, I I, there's no reason to doubt it. This guy tweeted and said uh, that he heard from a friend of his that in New Orleans, it's going to be three weeks Mm. before they should expect to have their electricity back. And upwards of five days before, you know, you can kind of trust the water. So uh, like the drinking water. And so. The the whether that's correct perfectly or not, the point is I don't know if you saw those clips last night as to when the all the lights went out, like when everything went. It was unbelievable. Also, New Orleans went dark. Yeah, and there's like one one point one million customers without power at this point. Yeah, I think it's just um, to watch the coverage yesterday, and thankfully it seems like this didn't turn into anything near like Katrina, where there was all the flooding, where they mm-hmm. had the levees break. Uh, a lot of the reinforcements of it, but to see the the flooding and the winds and all that, it's just terrifying. And then, you know, like you said, in the first hour, we talked about Afghanistan and, you know, you, you still think about Haiti and you mm-hmm. think about COVID and there is just a lot. Our friend Matthew Sorens over at World Relief, he tweeted just today, uh, feeling overwhelmed today by the scale of human suffering in the world. Afghan allies and many others threatened by the Taliban abandoned. New Orleans battered by another hurricane. Neighbors near and far fighting COVID. Haitians still homeless after the earthquake. Lord have mercy. Mm. I think that puts really well, I think, how a lot of people are feeling right now, whether you're watching that hurricane last night, uh, watching the news out of Africa, whatever it is, it's there. It does increasingly feel very overwhelming. It feels overwhelming. And it, I think it begs one of the oldest uh, theological <laughs> theodicy questions yeah. in the book, which is where is God in times like these? And especially in 
natural disasters. What do we do with a world that sort of rages against us? And Brian, you're a pastor. I am. I'm sure you get that question a lot from people, whether it's exactly like that or maybe sort of questioned differently, asked mm-hmm. differently. But in the face of all we're seeing right now, Hurricane Ida, mm-hmm. um, Alabama is about to be hit by some of this as well. Afghanistan, as we've been talking about today, and as we'll talk about later with David French, where is God? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful question. And it's one thing to ask that question about, say, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. because there's a lot, a lot, a lot of innocent people there, but it's still a man-made conflict. Good point. Right? Like it's still, you can still point to the brokenness of sinful people mm-hmm. and go, yeah, that's what happens, sinful people. But but it almost becomes harder when you're talking about an earthquake in yeah. Haiti, a tsunami on the other side of the globe, a, a hurricane driving through Louisiana, mm-hmm. whatever else it might be, because, you know, nobody went, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to dial up a hurricane. It, right. it just kind of feels like it right. just happens. And so... I think it is a hugely important theological question to go, is God just, did God miss that one? Can God not stop a hurricane or an earthquake? Uh, Or is God present in the midst of the brokenness Mm. of this world? How I tend to answer that question is in twofold. Um, The Bible is very clear that there's going to be these things on this earth that we live on a broken, in a broken world. And these things are part of that brokenness, but that God uh, sent Jesus into the brokenness and that in this already not yet time, Mm -hmm. God says, I'm going to be with you always. Mm -hmm. I'm near to the brokenhearted. That God is not abandoning us into a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake. Uh, And then, Aubrey, I think it again points us, and then I'd love to hear just how you answer this. I I think it again points us to, you know, when we say the already not yet, it's pointing to a time when, you know what, there's not going to be any more hurricanes. That's right. There's not going to be any more COVID. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more of any of these things that feel really unfair. Yeah. I remember saying from the pulpit once, I think if this world was all that there is, God would have a lot of explaining to do. Mm. Like it would be really hard to justify an all powerful God if this was all that there is. But the beauty of scripture is it tells us there's coming a day Mm -hmm. when none of this is our reality. And I think apart from that perspective, yeah, all of this stuff becomes, Mm -hmm. this is just a great, you know, sign that there is no God. Let's just throw up our hands, but this isn't all that there is. So we can cling to God's presence in all of the craziness and we can look forward to when all is made right and That's we're in so we're with thing. him. So yeah. thank you. What what would you say? How do you answer that I, for people? I think um what happens sometimes is we tend to either blame God or assume God mm-hmm. is causing these types of things because he's mad, because of judgment, mm-hmm. because of this and that. And I actually think that is a really dangerous line mm-hmm. to blame God for evil because we know that God overcomes evil. We know that God has overcome death. And we know that God does not cause destruction like this because Jesus has come and Jesus has paid the price. And so like what Brian is talking about is so important, this concept of already not yet that Mm -hmm. um, the work of the cross is enough and has begun new creation. We are seeing it now, but we are not seeing it in full. And the reality is there is sin that has broken this world and it doesn't just impact our human relationships. It impacts the globe. Sin causes hurricanes. Sin causes Mm -hmm. natural disasters. And I think we have too small 
of a view of what sin and evil are, we have to remember that there's a cosmic reality to this stuff. And what that means is the gospel is so incredible because it doesn't just transform us personally, transforms the entire cosmos, the entire world, the entire structure of the earth. And so Brian is exactly right. One, God is there in the middle of this, comforting the people of New Orleans in a way that we can't even imagine. And God is calling us to be his hands and feet to go to New Orleans or to send support to aid organizations to be his hands and feet in that way. But also God is writing a bigger story. Yes. That yes. In the middle of this, there is goodness coming. There is new yep. creation coming. And this is not going to be the last of what we see. Yeah. And the reason that that's so important is, Aubrey, I think if we don't have a view of God's presence in the midst of the suffering, and if we don't have a view of God's victory, ultimately, mm-hmm. I do think the the result is that we run away from God when things we shake our fist at him and yeah. go, how can a good God allow such evil to happen? How can a good God? It's the old paradox, right? He's either good or and all power or he's all powerful. Like if he was all powerful, then the evil's a big problem. If he was good, then evil's a big problem. Like if if this world is all that there is, then I think their legitimate response is I'm going to run away from God. And it's one thing also, Aubrey, to talk about earthquakes and hurricanes and all that stuff. But, you know, there's a person out there listening right now, I'm sure, who's got a family member. It might be yourself with cancer. And you didn't do anything likely to bring that upon yourself or the death of a loved one or whatever else it might be. But if we truly believe that the Bible is true, that there's more to this world than is than is going on now, that there's ultimately his victory and that he's present in our pain here, the result is not that I run from God, but that I run to God, mm, right? I fall so at his good. feet. I pray. I, I cling to him for my peace and my joy and my perspective. And that's why this really matters. And Aubrey, I'd say it doesn't make it easier. Certainly not. We as Christians have a way of doing this. Yeah. Well, God's all powerful. <laughs> it's okay. So, so yeah. what's cancer? What's right. a little hurricane? Right. No, no, no. These things are awful, but it's just a matter of perspective, right? Yeah, I, I, I was, I'm so glad you said that, Brian, because I know you and I never want to brush over people's no. pain. And right now we know the people in Louisiana are struggling and suffering. I mean, the reality of, I, I mean, I can't imagine being without power for weeks upon weeks, having not access to water. Think about hospitals that are taking care of COVID patients. Yeah. They're in trouble now. Like this is real and this is dark and this is heavy. But you're right. It is a matter of perspective that we face these things from Jesus's victory, not from the enemy's defeat. Yeah. And that changes everything at the end of the day. Absolutely. Well, we are going to talk about something that we're talking about a lot these days, Brian, but we think it's really important. How should Christians be thinking about the vaccine right this very moment? Stick around for that when we come back. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Monday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson, alongside a dancing Brian Fromm, by the way. He never dances, and he's dancing. I mean, I don't so. know, know that I never dance. I don't do the chair dances that you do on a regular basis. I feel but. like you have said firmly, I do not dance. So you're weddings. like... I'm a I'm non-wedding dancer. You're not a wedding dancer, but yeah. you're a studio dancer. I'm a studio <laughs> dancer, yes, yes. That is all... I'm guilty as charged on all of those, yes. Yeah, I like it. All right. We're going to turn to a little bit of a heavy topic. Listeners, listen. Another heavy topic. Another heavy topic. We're kind of diving in today. We love you, and there's no judgment. Okay, I want you to hear that. A little bit. I want you to hear that. (laughs) But we're going to talk about vaccines, okay? And so wherever you are with your vaccines, I just want you to listen, and we know that we love you, and we hope you love us. 
Brian, I'm sure there's people you know who are not getting the vaccine. That is true. They're refusing to get it. What are some of the reasons they're giving for not getting it? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. A good way to put it, because you and I are both vaccinated. As you said, you're super vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I do have friends and family who have not gotten vaccinated. And it runs the gamut, right? Some of them, I don't. They don't know what's in it. It hasn't been tested long enough. It's I, I don't want to get some health side effect down the line. I don't think COVID is as big a deal as it is. I've already had COVID, so therefore I feel comfortable that I'm naturally immune. And so I do think it's helpful because one of the things, Aubrey, and we're going to talk about this, is you've got this dichotomy right now of pro-vax, anti-vax, right? right? And it's like we've painted with this broad brush like we do in our culture with everything. All anti-vax people are this. They're all crazy. They're on Facebook reading uh, conspiracy theories. They all just want to take horse dewormer or whatever (laughs) it is out there right now. And nobody that I know is actually that, right? I don't know people who are actually that way. Uh, But I do know more than a few people who haven't gotten vaccinated because of the various reasons I told you. And so, you know, I, I do think that becomes important because it also is on the other side. Uh, if if you've got if you're an anti-vax person and you've got friends and family who have gotten vaccinated, that doesn't mean they've sold out to the government. That's right. They that, haven't sold their soul to the devil. Here's yeah. a really important one because this is going to make my blood boil every time I hear it. It doesn't mean that they've succumbed to fear over faith. Mm. Because guess what? We 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 have the, it's not this black and white dichotomy yeah. every time. And, and I don't understand why people are putting it with the vaccine, yeah. but they don't put it with. Cancer seatbelts, uh, seatbelts, or how about you have cancer? You're gonna go get, you're gonna get something, yep. or you're gonna go. Nope, faith over fear. I'm gonna. Okay, that's probably gonna end poorly right, for you. And right. so I would say, let's not paint with a broad brush mm. on both sides. Again, you and I have both been vaccinated, mm-hmm. uh, but also this is rearing its head more and more and yeah, more on is. a daily basis. You and I are gonna have David French on here uh, at at about five thirty five or so. We love David French. Mm-hmm. He wrote a uh, a piece this week at the French press. He literally uh, entitled it, <clears throat> excuse me, it's time to stop rationalizing and enabling evangelical vaccine rejection. So he's going to talk about this. There was also the story this week about uh, the NRB, the National Radio Broadcasters, and Dan Darling, their spokesman, who was let go because he went on Morning Joe on MSNBC and also wrote in the USA Today not only why he got vaccinated, but why Christians should get vaccinated. Yeah. And there was like that was a breaking point and mm-hmm. Twitter blew up over mm-hmm. the weekend over the story. And so, Aubrey, I think what becomes important is how should Christians think about the vaccine? But also, how do we can. OK, here it is. Can we disagree about the vaccine and still be together or yeah. is it that much of a life or death scenario yeah. that you can? I would say I, I would say that 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 people can disagree on this and still be together. We can still talk. We can still. Yes. But some people aren't treating it that way. And I think that that especially in under the umbrella of uh, the Christ follower, I think that's problematic. Yeah, I think under the umbrella of Christ followers, we absolutely must be able to disagree and still be civil with one another and still love one another. 
you know, we were with a group of people last night and some in the group are vaccinated and others aren't. And what I appreciated about it is those who weren't vaccinated kept their masks on the whole time. Interesting. And I think ultimately it sort of comes down to that for me. Okay, fine. If you before your doctor and before the Lord, first and foremost, under your conscience, cannot get the vaccine then I would urge you to wear a mask so that you are not inadvertently spreading uh, COVID to someone else who may be more vulnerable than you. I heard a pastor over the weekend um, say, you know, you brought up that faith over fear conversation. Mm -hmm. He wasn't actually talking about the vaccine. He was talking about masks. But he said, you know, a lot of times we say this is faith. You know, you're choosing fear over faith. And he said, this honestly isn't about faith or fear. This is about love. Mm-hmm. It's a way that we love our neighbor. And I actually think the vaccine can be considered a way to love your neighbor and a way to help us all get back on track as a healthy, like moving United States of America again. And I think beyond the United States, we have to remember that we have access to the vaccine and there are still countries that do not. Mm-hmm. And those countries, people are suffering. And so so are we inadvertently pushing something aside that's actually a privilege that could possibly even bless people globally? I, I just think we have to think about it larger than we are. Again, Brian's right. We can still be in community. We can still be in friendship. We can still love each other. We don't paint each other with broad brushes. But I do think it's time to take this really seriously. And also, like, the fact that uh, we have to be able to speak our minds too mm-hmm. about it and not be afraid of cancel culture or what have you. I do think it's very interesting. Like even the stuff you brought up, uh, I had a conversation with somebody recently uh, and the whole even idea of people using uh, the vaccine as this is to love your neighbor. Well, they were so against kind of the vaccine in the sense of the health portions of it that they're like, no, what if the loving neighbor thing here is to not let them get the vaccine. And I was just like, oh, my head was kind of spinning. <laughs> yeah, you, you could go back and, and forth on that. And so I do think the big question for us becomes, uh, because we're about to live in a world where people are going to lose their jobs if they don't get vaccinated or where mm-hmm. we hear of people using fake vaccine cards right. so that they people don't. People aren't unable to travel or go to restaurants. So I yeah. think this is going to get really real, mm-hmm. much more so even than it is now. And so, Aubrey, I guess I'm more concerned with, again, I'm vaccinated, you're vaccinated. I think I'm more concerned almost with not the debate, because I think people who have decided I'm not getting vaccinated aren't going to. Probably not. You're although, right. Although there is an article here that, ta- that that says that the more faith leaders have been talking about it in an encouraging way, the more they're seeing numbers go up. That's true. That might be coincidental or not. We shall see. Uh, but I do think the, the large portion of this conversation for me increasingly is how do we talk about it? How do people in my church talk yeah, about it? How do nice. they... Uh, do they spend their time on Facebook throwing bombs? I heard of two people uh, in church together who just went at it on Facebook. And you're like, what is, oh, no. Why are we doing this? And so, you know, yeah, I, I would love to have the conversation and be able to change somebody's mind on this. And that, but more so, how do we have the conversation that says, all right, you do, you're clearly not going to get vaccinated or you clearly are going to get vaccinated. But we disagree about that. Mm-hmm. But but we can still have unity and be together and yeah. talk. And I know that's a big thing for me. But I, I do wonder Yes, it's important about whether or not we're getting vaccinated, but it still becomes important. This this doesn't need to drive a wedge between and people. Some people disagree with me on this. I don't think it needs to drive a wedge between brother and sister, mm. you know, parents and kids, yeah. uh, you know, friends or church members. I, I think 
that, that there's ways to move beyond this. We all want the COVID to be done. We Absolutely. all want to be done. But I think that there's ways to do it without just tearing each other apart. Yeah, and I think that's a good word for all of us because I know and you know and listeners, you know, that there are a lot of family members maybe you're not even in relationship with right now because you disagree over how the things are being handled and over the vaccine. And that is the last thing that the Lord wants. I actually think that's something the enemy is using to divide loved ones, to divide families. And so whether you're like me and Brian and you've been vaccinated, I think the call ultimately is to be in community, love those who are different from you. Let's extend humility Mm -hmm. and grace and generosity to one another relationally while keep doing what we think is right and what honestly is loving our neighbors. Wherever you land on that, I think that's what it sounds like. David French has a lot of wisdom about that. We're so glad we're going to be joined by him next as he talks to us a lot about Christians and the vaccine. He's the senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist for Time Magazine, the author of Divided we fall. Stick around for that conversation with David French. It's going to be a very powerful one. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Monday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are so thrilled to have one of our favorite guests, David French, on the show today. He's the senior editor at The Dispatch, a columnist for Time Magazine and author of Divided we fall. You can learn more about David at thedispatch.com and at his blog, The French Press. David, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work? Yeah, I'm a uh, recovering constitutional lawyer, um, <laughs> currently, currently a, a journalist, writer, and I'm also an uh, Iraq war vet mm. and uh Husband of three—I mean, husband of three kids, <laughs> father of three kids, husband, and Christian. Not all necessarily in all that that order. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. I, I had a different question until you told me you're a husband of three. Mm-hmm. Now we need to talk yeah. about this. So, David, we love having you on. And I joked with you off air that you need to start writing about more controversial things and stop pulling your punches. As today, you wrote about evangelical <laughs> vaccine rejection. <laughs> Oh yeah, and and David, you say in just in the title of uh, of your blog post, which I really appreciate, you said it's time to stop rationalizing and enabling evangelical vaccine rejection. So I guess I would start there. How has how have we been rationalizing and enabling the vaccine rejection in the evangelical world right now? Yeah, th- so there's there's a couple of ways. One has been really honestly, what we've done is we've sort of bent over backwards to, to give credence to an awful lot of quite quite frankly ludicrous um, and sometimes conspiracy-driven mm. pseudoscientific arguments. That's one thing that we've done. Another thing that we've done is we've really failed to sort of provide a general moral framework for how we should be approaching this pandemic. Like, what, what is our, what's our moral obligation? Mm. We're so much in defense lawyer mode. In other words, don't, don't think badly of us for refusing the vaccine when we should be sort of more theologically and morally minded, what's our obligation as mm-hmm. we approach this pandemic and as we're in the midst of this pandemic? And the last thing is that we have a distorted view of religious liberty, because there's mm-hmm. a lot of people who are now flooding uh, religious liberty law firms with requests for religious exemptions from vaccines. And, wow. And, so, and in the middle point, what I did is I, I really, I literally went all the way to the back to the 16th century. Wow. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I went to Martin Luther, because you know what? Christians have confronted deadly pandemics 
for millennia. And Martin Luther had a really phenomenal framework where he was essentially saying, I will do what what is necessary to preserve my health. In other words, I'll take medicines, I will avoid being around other people to um, avoid inadvertently transmitting the disease. Mm. But if I need to help my neighbor, I will go willingly. Mm. And so essentially that framework is, I will take care of myself uh, to preserve my to preserve my health, but if I'm going to take a risk, and it might be necessary to take a risk, I'm going to take a risk on behalf of others mm. to wow. help other people. And to me, that's just it's a marvelous moral framework, and and it fits it fits so neatly within the vaccine context because um, the vaccine is the single best way we know of to take care of yourself to preserve your life, yeah. and if you're having any kind of worry or qualm about it. In other words, you think, oh, I don't know about the side effects. You feel like it's a risk. Well, look at it this way. It's a risk you're taking, not just to take care of yourself, but on behalf of taking care of others, your mm-hmm. friends, your neighbors. Yeah. And that this is a, this fits so well within that, that framework. And, and I, I wanted to just communicate that so people could sort of what's just kind of a simple way to think about costs and benefits and risks and, and our moral duties to our friends and neighbors. Good. Yeah, these are good questions that you're bringing up, David. I, I want to ask you to unpack that statement that you said just a few minutes ago, that we have a distorted view of religious liberty, because I think you're right. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so um, essentially we've talked so much, in, especially in conservative Christian circles, about our religious liberties under threat or religious liberties under threat, that we've spent less time talking about what is that liberty and what are those limits. And one of the things I, I argue is that there's a moral limit and a legal limit to religious liberty. Uh, for the, uh, from a moral perspective, religious liberty is not licensed for us to do what we want. It's mm. a license, it is a permission to engage in, or it's a right, a right to engage in virtuous behavior. In other words, we should look at liberty as an opportunity to exercise virtue, mm. not as an opportunity to do whatever we please. And then the other thing is that Religious liberty has had long understood limits, and one of the key limits is my freedom ends where your rights begin. Mm-hmm. And, and so, for example, you know the the, um, the Declaration of Independence, this you know great Declaration of American Principles, says that we have um, our Creator uh, has uh, that we have unalienable rights. You know that our Creator has granted us unalienable rights. That's right. Among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And that's actually a pretty good um, outline of the limits of liberty. So my liberty cannot interfere with your right to life, right? Mm-hmm. And nor can my liberty materially impair your pursuit of happiness. And so, in other words, I don't have the ability. My rights end when I might threaten your life, as in mm-hmm. with a vaccine, without, uh, with, as in with a virus. And also, you know, to the ability to um, live the way I want to live in such a way that it materially impairs the way people, other people want to live their lives, pursue happiness. Also, there are limits. And, and you see this in American law, where religious liberty, the compelling governmental interests that will overcome religious liberty, are related to the health and lives of our fellow citizens. And this has always been the case. Yeah, yeah. David, why do you think, this is kind of the $64,000 question, but why do evangelicals, uh, particularly white evangelicals, uh, 
kind of support this vaccine lower than other groups, other across the board. What is it about evangelicalism that looks at this vaccine and says, I don't want to partake in this? Yeah, that's a really, really good question, and it cannot be divorced from larger context. So um, one of the things, so a lot of evangelicals will say, well, I just, I just trust the vaccine because mRNA is uh, technology is newer than other kinds of vaccine technology, or um, they'll talk about cell lines, or they'll mm. talk about the VAERS database, et cetera, et cetera. But we can't divorce this from the fact that evangelicals have just been disproportionately anti-vaccine. Yeah. They've been disproportionately anti-mask. They've been disproportionately stop the steal. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, they, and they've been disproportionately QAnon. And so there is something going on in the larger community mm. that is, and we cannot look at each one of these things as a separate thing. Mm. And and my my belief is that what we began to see was everything that has become partisan in our country, you have begun to see evangelicals behave in a disproportionately partisan fashion. So, um, you know, obviously Stop the Steal was a highly partisan issue. Mm. Um, QAnon became a partisan issue. Uh, and sadly, the health, media, the, the, the health response, the public health response to COVID became a partisan issue. Mm. And so any measure, and, and this has been one of the most documented aspects of the COVID pandemic, is that red Americans have tended to underestimate the dangers of COVID, and blue Americans have tended to overestimate the dangers of COVID. Mm. And so if that's the reality, then you might see the problem you might see in blue America is maybe too much dependence on lockdowns that have been proven to be relatively ineffective or mm. keeping school, schools closed yeah. a little too long yeah. or and then in red america you will see a scorning of mask mandates a greater rejection of the vaccine anything that indicates that the disease is serious you're going to have a lot of red americans mm-hmm. underestimating yeah. that risk right. and because evangelicals are disproportionately republican they go right along with that interesting wow so fascinating. David French is a senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist for Time Magazine and author of Divided We Fall. We've been talking with David about the vaccine, and I wanted, David, to kind of switch topics here, if you don't mind, and talk to you about cancel culture, because you published something uh-huh. last week, the cancel culture paradox. If self-censorship is the norm, why is free expression so unrestrained? I think it's a great question. So, why is free expression so unrestrained? <laughs> yeah, that's it. so. I was I was writing a piece for this uh, group called the Liberty Fund, where there, and I was writing about what are some threats to freedom in this country. And and one, I said I was trying to make the argument that one of the greatest threats to freedom is animosity. It's quite literally how much we hate each other. But then, as you know, and when you hate another person or you have high degree of animosity, you don't want them to be free. Yeah. You don't respect their liberty. But I was, as I was sort of writing through this thing, and, I've, I've, and I have spent a lot of time talking and, and thinking about cancel culture, I sort of put my head, myself in the, in the mindset of somebody who just sort of like arrived out of nowhere to this culture. And if you told them that most Americans don't feel free to speak, that they feel stifled, and then you turned on Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> yes. you would be deeply confused yes. because you would think, wait a minute, if this is what a culture looks like when people are afraid to talk, I would hate to see if they felt free.
free to say whatever they wanted to say. <laughs> That's real. And and what I what you know what I did is I said, look, these two there are two things that are true at one time, and one is those people who are highly politically engaged, they kind of thrive off of this cancel culture world because mm. they like provoking their enemies. They enjoy skating the line. In fact, there's an entire cancel culture economy where people who are get you know that get canceled by the other side are able to fundraise off of that, gain fame off of that, and that's right. sell books off of that. But the problem is that's only a minority of people like to live in that kind of world. Um, that's not a world that suits most of us. Um, most of us, in fact, hate and really dislike being subject to an unbelievable amount of vitriol or personal or vicious insults when we just say what's on our heart about politics or about culture or about law. And so what do we do? The majority of people who don't like to live like that, they don't want to be in that sort of screaming, um, (laughs) that screaming abyss of Twitter, they withdraw. Mm. They check out. Yeah. And there's interesting social science data that says really what we have in America is we have a lot of our politics and our cultural battles are driven by people at the ideological wing, Mm -hmm. and that there is an exhausted minority, and this exhausted majority are conservatives and progressives. They're all over the political map. They're not all moderate, but they're united by this belief that basically this engagement is deeply alienating, Mm -hmm. um, that there are common ground kinds of solutions that nobody cares about, and that they just don't want to be a part of it. They're just checking out. And and I talked about a doctor friend of mine who was a staunch Republican, and and he said after January 6th, he just turned off everything. He stopped cable news, (laughs) he deleted all social media, and he felt better, like his his blood pressure went down. Mm. and I had two thoughts at once. Good for him. You know, I'm so happy that he's feeling more peace and bad for us because he's mm. a good guy. And, yeah. and, you know, I hate to see the good guys and the, you know, the, the men and women of, you know, real sort of character being driven out of these platforms. That's right. and so that, and so it isn't so much cancel culture, maybe as it's exhaustion culture. <laughs> I totally agree. That, that is, is real. Really yep. Uh, David, let me ask you this again. I love that we can kind of shoot to all fields with you. I know over the last week or two, I've appreciated all of the tweets you've made, retweets, kind of you've you've helped me understand what's going on in Afghanistan right now. And I know you have a military background that you can remind our people of. But can you just help us understand, did we get anything right in this, in the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? Uh, what did If we did, what did we get right? And why does it feel like things went so badly? And, and yeah, just kind of what are you thinking about what you're seeing over there? Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple of things, I think, that are true at once that a lot of people don't understand about um, military retreats and defeats. Um, one is that retreat and defeat is always messy and horrible and ugly and mm. bloody. It's awful. Mm. And so when you know when you sort of talk about in the abstract withdrawal, you know, when you talk about leaving, it sort of feels all kind of academic, right? Yeah. Um, and it's just it, until the moment when the withdrawal and the retreat happen. Mm-hmm. And if you're withdrawing or retreating in the face of an actual advancing enemy, then things just go south very, very fast, and that's a Mm. constant historical, there's a constant historical pattern to that. The reason we didn't see things go 
south so immediately fast in 2011 when Obama withdrew from Iraq is because al-Qaeda in Iraq was basically defeated at that time. It took them the jihadists years to reconstitute themselves. But the Taliban weren't defeated now. They were on the advance. And so it's absolutely true that every kind of retreat in those circumstances is devastating, messy, bloody, awful, terrible. Mm -hmm. It is also true that you can do it in better ways and worse ways. Mm. And that the Biden administration made some key mistakes that have made this retreat that much worse. And so I think the best way to think about it is it was always going to be terrible, (laughs) but it was more terrible than it needed to be. Mm. And how much more terrible is we'll we'll debate between now and the end of time because nobody has any way of knowing. Mm. And then, David, I mean, this is maybe too much of a personal question. I'm just wondering how you're feeling hearing that and even just saying that now, because this feels heavy for us. And I'm just wondering with your military background, like, how are you feeling? How are you responding? How are you processing all of this emotionally? Well, you know, it's actually giving me, because I served in Iraq. I didn't serve in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And, and I vividly remember 2014 when ISIS was on the march through Iraq. And, and there was this period of time in 2014 when you thought, oh, my goodness, is ISIS going to take the whole country? Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, the Obama administration intervened and stopped and started to roll back ISIS. But there was that moment where you were, you know, my and, and, and yes, I, I was deeply frustrated because of my own service, but I was 1,000 times more frustrated and heartbroken because of the families of those who fell in Iraq and whether or not they were wondering if that immense sacrifice was all worth it. Yeah, and, right. and that's what a lot of families are going through right now. And, you know, one of the things that I, I wrote a whole piece about this, and, and one of the things I just wanted to get across is that, you know, when you're a, when you're a soldier, when you're, when you're, you know, son or daughter, or husband or wife is a soldier, you know, all you can do is your duty. Yeah. Do, mm-hmm. Can you hold the line in your turn and your time? Mm-hmm. And if the answer to that is yes, you know, we need to rethink the way we think about sacrifice. It isn't that it's transactional. In other words, sacrifice is only worth it if we can show some sort of immediate, tangible return. Now, sacrifice is actually transcendent. Mm-hmm. It is something that has... Sacrifice in a virtuous cause has helps define not just the person, it defines a family, wow. it defines a nation, mm-hmm. and people who sacrifice in a virtuous cause, that sacrifice has immense, immense value beyond did it accomplish this particular immediate objective or did it not accomplish this immediate particular objective? And, and the ultimate model for that in, in so many ways is, you know, if you're talking about, you know, Israel in the first century AD, the sacrifice on the cross, mm. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a symbol of failure. That's it right. was, That's right. you know, it was that Rome had won again, right? <laughs> <laughs> But we know the rest of the story. Yeah. We know the transcendence of it. And and I think that that's something that's so important that for people who are hurting and suffering is to know that that that, that these folks who, who bled and died in these mm-hmm. fields in Afghanistan, in their term and in their time, they, they held the line. Mm. They did their duty. And that sacrifice helps define us to this day. It's yeah. the nobler part of this nation. And 
That's right. Goodness knows we've seen some of the worst parts of our nation. Mm-hmm. But there's a nobler part, and mm-hmm. they define that nobler part. Mm, thank you for that word, David. And thanks so much for being here with us today. We always love having you on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yep. David French is a senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist for Time Magazine, and author of Divided We Fall. You can learn more about David at thedispatch.com and at his blog, The French Press. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us on The Common Good today. We'll be back tomorrow right here on AM 1160 from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.